0: Chapter 16 of Esther Reed's Namesake. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Esther Reed's Namesake by Pansy. Chapter 16 Deliberately and Forever. Instead of seeking her accustomed Sunday afternoon nook, a corner of the nearly always deserted side veranda, Esther established herself in front of her one window. The day was warm, and her room was on the third floor, but it had only a northern exposure and she had persuaded herself that the heat was not too great for endurance. Whether it was or not, she felt that she must be alone. Grave interests were at stake. Instinctively she realized that her life had reached a crisis. Some questions must be settled now for all time, so that, as Professor Langham had phrased it, they would not be open again for consideration. The unhappiness and unfruitfulness of her present way of living were so marked, that it needed no argument to convince her of the necessity for a change. Never, since she had realized that, whether she would or not, she must influence others more or less, had she felt her worthlessness so fully. Making the acquaintance of Melindy, and watching Faith's growing interest in the girl, had roused her. It became evident that Faith's interest was not simply due to the fact that here was a girl of about her own age, environed by new and strange conditions. It was the mountain girl's religious experience that had fascinated her. She could not get away from it, but talked about the girl incessantly, and wondered over her. "'I should like to try her,' she said, "'in an entirely different atmosphere, school life, for instance. "'Do you know she wants to study? "'She told me so the last time I was there. "'What do you think is her chief reason? "'She comes across verses in her Bible that she doesn't understand,' and if she could study and learn, of course she would know what they mean. College life would be a revelation to her, wouldn't it? Just what do you mean by that? Esther had asked. Don't you think that education helps people to understand the Bible? Why, in a way, yes, it ought to, of course. But if one may judge by lives, what most educated people seem to learn about the Bible is that the English language doesn't mean what the English language seems to say. You have a poor opinion of Christian people, haven't you? Oh, no, no, indeed. They are a very good sort of people, those whom I know, delightful to visit with, but not one whit different, so far as I can see, from scores of others who make no professions. And their code of rules, judging from their text book, seems to require a very different kind of living. Esther, my dear, don't look reproachful. I am not cavilling, it is all a mystery to me, and one over which I am curious. Until I met our friend Melindy, I never saw anyone in my life who seemed to have taken squarely hold of the Bible with a determination to live it. You have been unfortunate in your acquaintances, Esther said coldly, and Faith had made haste to reply. I presume that is true, in the sense in which you mean. I don't know many Christians intimately. We are not a religious family, you know, and of course my observations are all superficial. But, on the surface, there is really a marked difference between Melindy and all the other girls I know who have got religion. What I cannot help wondering about is whether or not it is her isolation and ignorance that makes the difference. If it is, it would be a pity to educate her, wouldn't it? For at present she certainly has a superstition, or whatever you call it, about the Bible and the chief character in it, and the unseen world in general, that I cannot help but admire. There are even times when I envy her. Such had been Faith's confession, and her sore-hearted friend, as she recalled it, told herself that if her life were what it should be, she could have influenced Faith, even as Belindy had, with a clearer knowledge of the way. But her life was not what it should be, and her influence, what little she had exerted, had been against rather than for the doctrines which she professed. That word influence recalled again the speaker of the morning, and one sentence in his address that had increased her personal interest. He had spoken at length and with impressive earnestness, to the students especially, of the influence that they were without doubt exerting, and the certainty that it would be lasting, and would reach, they could not tell whither. In the way of illustration, he had spoken of himself. He told them that his entire life had been colored, perhaps it was not too much to say changed, from what would in all probability have been its natural current, by the influence of one young woman, whom he not only never saw, but who died many years before he was born, and was only nineteen when she died. She was beloved by his mother, who was then a sixteen-year-old schoolgirl, with a devotion and a passion which had unmistakably become a part of her life, and helped to make of her the woman and the mother that she was. Naturally, this statement had intense interest for Esther Randall. Here were this man's mother and her father, influenced for life by a woman who was only nineteen when she died. How could she help wondering whether possibly this mother's friend had been named Esther Reed? True, she had smiled at the romantic turn her thoughts had taken, and brought them promptly back to the speaker and his theme. But the incident returned to her memory to add another sting to her self-reproachful thoughts. What if she had been such a Christian as that Esther Reed? Then Faith would not have had to wait for that untrained mountain girl to show her what was meant by getting religion. "'What is the trouble with me?' she said aloud, dreary discouragement in her voice. "'Why is it that I am as I am?' I believe in the doctrines in which I have been trained. I have not a shadow of doubt as to Jesus Christ being a Savior for sin, nor as to my need of a Savior. More than that, I believe that I am saved. If I should die tonight, I believe and am sure that I should go straight to the presence of Jesus Christ and be covered by his righteousness. Yet my religion does not satisfy me, and I am not living it. I am a daily, hourly disgrace to the one who has saved me. I know this, yet it does not make me miserable. It does not take even so important a place in my daily thought as the question of how I shall get some decent clothes for next year, or what I shall wear during commencement week, or whether I was foolish in declining Professor Langham's invitation to the matinee, or what I shall do if he should invite me again, or a dozen other trivialities. What can it be that makes the difference between that girl in the woods and me?' Over and over in her troubled mind this train of thought revolved. Gradually the conviction grew upon her that, while she had recognized Jesus Christ as her Savior and based on him her hope of heaven, she had never enthroned him in her heart so that to find out his will and do it was the passion of her life. Instead, what had she been doing all her life but trying to compromise? Simple and quiet as her environment had always been, She knew that what the Bible meant by the world had taken hold of her in various forms, and held her from that close relationship with Christ which her father craved for her. She had known all the while what he meant, even when she had pushed the thought from her with the petulant cry, I don't understand what he wants of me. On this soul-searching day her heretofore dulled conscience told her plainly that such words had not been true. She was a carefully trained girl and knew intellectually a good deal of theology. She went to her knees at last, only to find that even prayer seemed to be denied her. Familiar with Bible stories from her childhood, one of them flashed before her now, and the words insisted on repeating themselves in her mind. There was no voice, nor any that answered. Was that really to be her experience? "'But that was a false god,' she said desperately.' "'Yes,' a voice seemed to say to her. "'But here is a false disciple. "'Can you think that the true God waits always upon the moods and whims "'of those who profess to be his followers, "'yet who daily disregard his directions and slight his calls? "'Whose voice was this? "'Could it be that the Lord Christ had cast her off as a worthless branch?' Esther Randall never forgot the two hours that she spent in her room "'on that warm Sunday afternoon, when not on her knees,' she was walking up and down the narrow space, in almost a frenzy of terror and dismay. Was it possible that she could never pray any more? Were such experiences possible in these days? Had God, indeed, cast her off forever? At last, weary of beating against the bars of her own thoughts, all spent with weeping, something like the feeling that must have taken possession of one of the Lord's poor sinners of long ago, when he cried out, "'Cast me not away from thy presence,' swept in upon her, and she knew that she wanted Christ, wanted him more than all else in the world. Long before this, it seemed to her on that June day that it was hundreds of years ago, there had been given to Esther, by a visiting evangelist, what he called a consecration card, part of which read, Upon my knees in thy presence I do now give myself to thee, and I do this freely, honestly, deliberately, and forever. As a child, she had read the words again and again, but dimly comprehending their meaning. They came back to her now, and were understood in their fullness. For the first time in her life, they seemed to express her thought, her desire. She said the words aloud, very deliberately. She knew that she meant them. Even though he did not answer her, could not answer because her unworthiness had built a wall between them, yet she must serve him. Suddenly she laid her hand on the chair before which she was kneeling, and let the tears that seemed to be choking her have their way. They quieted her, or something quieted her. She felt a great peace as a river flowing into her soul. The Lord Christ was no longer a master, looking down upon her in stern disapproval from a faraway height. He was near, close at hand. She could almost touch the hem of his garment, grieved he was, by her treatment of him, yet forgiving, tender, wonderful in his love. All her soul went out to meet him, and she knew that he was from henceforth not simply her king to receive royal service, but her friend and companion. Words found on a little leaflet and treasured in her Bible came to mind to voice her thought. She said the lines exultingly, Out of the hardness of heart and of will, out of the longings which nothing could fill, out of the bitterness, madness, and strife, out of myself and all I called life, into the having of all things with him, into an ecstasy full to the brim, wonderful lowliness draining my cup, wonderful purpose that ne'er gave me up, wonderful patience enduring and strong, wonderful glory to which I belong. A mount of transfiguration, some of us have spent single hours there, and we know that the everyday life flows in full soon. Esther Randall had but scant time with her new joy, before the world and a temptation called her. It was Selma Victor who knocked at her door with a message. "'Professor Langham is waiting to see you, Miss Randall. He is in a great hurry. I don't know whether he wants you to elope with him immediately or not, but he looks as though he might be planning something of the kind.' Ordinarily this flippant address would have annoyed Esther, but her descent to earth was so sudden that she felt only bewilderment. She had been asleep, I guess, Selma reported to her mother, and she is only about half awake now. She looked at me as though I was a piece of a dream. Esther heard this and smiled. She is right, she told herself softly. I have been asleep, but I am awake now. Professor Langham was undoubtedly in haste. I must beg your pardon for abruptness, he said, and make known my errand as speedily as possible. The situation is this I have been trying during the past week to secure seats to the oratorio this evening, and have failed. But to-night's mail brought a delayed letter from a friend who had succeeded in getting me two tickets. Now the question is will you waive the ordinary proprieties and make all speed with me to the 710 train? We shall be less than fifteen minutes late at the Allerton even if they are very prompt in opening and we can return by the midnight train for a moment esther stood before him as one dazed this was so sudden and unexpected a plunge into the world sunday evening she said at last and her tone made the two words expressive yes this evening it is an oratorio you know one of the finest and madame shriver is the chief soloist it is a rare occasion you see but mr langham it is a sunday train he smiled patiently certainly he said one could hardly go into town on sunday without taking a sunday train my dear miss randall you surely do not object to an hour's ride on the cars less than an hour indeed not so long a trip as hundreds of christian people who live in town are compelled to take every sunday by trolley in order to reach their churches Why should you consider steam so much greater a sinner than electricity? I do not, said Esther quickly. I don't ride on trolley-cars on Sunday. He looked his astonishment tinged with amusement. But, my dear friend, you cannot think it wrong to do so. Would not such a position be taken at the expense of setting one's individual judgment against that of hundreds of our best people? If the professor had not been in haste, he would not have ventured so careless an argument. Esther smiled as she answered. I cannot, of course, decide questions for hundreds of people. I find quite enough to do in looking after myself. But just now I am not called upon to consider the matter of the trolley for the purpose of getting to church every Sunday. I believe the question is with regard to going away from my church, by train, to attend a concert. That, at least, is plain to me.' He almost interrupted her in his eagerness to get in his next word before she committed herself to a positive statement. Miss Randall, there isn't time for a discussion. When there is, I think I can make some things plain to you. Meantime, I am going to ask a favor. Will you defer all further consideration of the matter and go with me this evening? Because I wish it very much, and would not enjoy the oratorio without you, and because I want to take this opportunity to tell you something. That is of great importance to me? His entire manner had changed. That calm superiority with which she had always felt impressed was disturbed. He was intensely in earnest, and he threw a meaning into his words that she could not but understand. End of chapter 16. Recording by Tricia G.